Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. <gasps> Do we need a new sound effect? I'm just thinking ahead to the dick bracket section. Do we need like an indicator of the dick bracket section? Yes. Okay. Um, what should it be? It should be like a like a like a dick sound, like a <laughs> like a womp womp, or like a hmm. <sighs> Like, <laughs> like the sound of a of Almost a, a like flaccid a slide dick. whistle or something. Which yeah, is like yeah. Like I don't whistle. have is a slide whistle. Do not have a slide whistle. Aubrey. I don't know. It's on my wish list. I. Uh, you are disappointing me today. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts. Jess Hamlet <laughs> is tired. <laughs> and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet and one of us is tired. Not just one of us, but Jess did get through a really rough first day of school today. So this first day of school and I'm tired. Congratulations, boo-boo. <laughs> I didn't even teach today. Like I I have to teach tomorrow no. and that's gonna be I'm tired. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy this show and come back for more. Every week we will be discussing a different play by our favorite guy, William Scabopolis Shakespeare, (laughs) at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, that's uh, everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and what's going on in it and some other cool stuff like our opinions. And sometimes it's not even Shakespeare, man. Sometimes it's Thomas Kidd. Yeah. And sometimes we just drop some like life knowledge bombs on you. We don't know when they're going to strike. So, you know. Genius strikes at any moment, man. Yeah. And we are geniuses. Fucking geniuses. <laughs> Speaking of, to like keep that genius muscle working, um, yeah. we like to begin each episode, each 101 episode, with a rhetorical device of the week. So because we are word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy dandy American Shakespeare Center rhetorical device cards yeah for actors and scholars knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said so basically it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics draw a card chickadee tell me what is that that i want no go back one more i wanted that purple one yeah that one okay this one <laughs> is apostrophe. Apostrophe. A P O S T R O P H E. You think you know what it is? Like in a no, I grammatical don't sense. I'm speaking you as in like I mean, plural yeah. of our sure. listeners. Jess, it's not all about you, Sorry. Jess. Yes, it is. Sorry. <laughs> okay, so yes, there there are apostrophes that exist for punctuation. There's also apostrophe in rhetoric which is address to an abstract concept to an inanimate object or to the absent a turning away of the conversation 
which means fuck all. So let me read the examples. Yeah. Okay. The first, there's two examples on this one. The first example is from Julius Caesar. It's Antony. Antony. (laughs) Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek (gasps) and gentle with these butchers. And thou bleeding piece of earth is the inanimate, in this case, uh, inanimate thing, speaking to Caesar's dead body, which is inanimate. Okay. Uh, So this next example confuses me, but it's Margaret from 3 Henry 6. Thus do I leave thee. Come, son, let's away. So I guess it's a turning away of the conversation. I guess it's that sort of apostrophe. Because it's not Mm. an abstract concept because your son is not abstract. It's not an inanimate object because her son is not dead. He is animated with life. So, and he's not absent because she's talking to him. So it would, it must be a turning away of the conversation. Is that the part where she divorces herself from Henry? Maybe. Or is that in part two? I don't remember. Because that would make sense if it was a turning away from Henry. Maybe. I mean, this just seems like a turning away from the conversation anyhow. Anyway, I mean, yeah. the, the Antony example is a little bit better. So, oh, pardon me, that bleeding piece of earth. So, again, apostrophe is addressed to an abstract concept or an inanimate object or something that is absent. Or it is a turning away of the conversation. Cool. Uh, yeah. Learn something new. Yep. There it is. It's now time for your Burbage Break with Master Master Hamlet. So 106 is a history play. And so I thought uh, that I might talk about Hollinshed's Chronicles, which is a historical text that was the source for pretty much all of Shakespeare's history plays. So what is that? Let's talk about it. In 1548, a London printer named Reginald Wolfe had the idea to create, quote, a universal cosmography of the whole world and therewith also certain particular histories of every known nation, end quote, uh, which would include maps and illustrations and fun facts and pictures, I guess pictures and illustrations are the same thing. So He realized pretty quickly after he decided to do this that the project was way too big for him to do all by his little self. Uh, So he hired this guy, Raphael Hollinshed, to help him. Mr. Wolf died before the project was finished, so Hollinshed led the final charge, and that is pretty much why the Chronicle bears his name. So Hollinshed was helped in the end by uh, four guys, Richard Stannyhurst, William Harrison, Edmund Campion, and John Hooker. Um, And then the two Uh, volumes... (laughs) Sorry. The two volumes of the Chronicles of England, Scotland, and Ireland were published in 1577. So it went from uh, Reginald Wolfe's idea to do it of every place and all time to just England, Scotland, and Ireland. And the fucking... The thing's huge, y'all. It's huge. It's thousands of pages. Um, and that's just England, Scotland, and Ireland over like, I don't know, 800 years or some shit. I'm not sure how much time it covers. I don't know how far back it goes, but like, it's huge. It's huge. So our good friend, William Theopolis Shakespeare, used 
the Holland Shed, as we call it, we call it the Holland Shed, or sometimes the Chronicles, or sometimes Holland Sheds, or whatever. Anyway, Shakespeare used Holland Shed as a source for basically all of his history plays, plus also plays like Macbeth, King Lear, Cymbeline. Sometimes he follows the text pretty closely and even borrows language from it. Uh, sometimes he uses it as a map just sort of a, a general outline for his plots. Uh, and sometimes he ignores it completely in favor of his own imagination or other historical sources that disagree with what Hollandshed says. He probably used the 1587 second edition for this, for his, his source work. And scholars think, think that because of similarities between some of Shakespeare's texts uh, and some passages which only appear in the second edition of the Chronicles. So makes sense to me. I, I don't want to quibble with that. Um, so for an example of how Shakespeare used the text, we can look at Macbeth. The Chronicles have an account of King Duncan's reign because it covers Scotland. Uh, the scholars apparently now think that the account in the Holland Shed is more legend than fact. Um, although I don't have scholarship on that, so I can't tell you why. Sorry about it. So Holland Shed. Uh, depicts Duncan as a, quote, soft and gentle king. Uh, and as he depicts Macbeth as nasty but effective. Uh, and Hollinshed also outlines Macbeth's legitimate place in the line of succession, which is something that I think the play glosses over pretty poorly or opaquely. It's not clear to me from reading the play that Macbeth has a legitimate spot in the line of succession. So yeah, he's usurping, but he's he's not like... I'm trying to think of another example from Shakespeare of a usurper. Um, I don't know. He's no. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was going to go with Bolingbroke or maybe Henry Tudor. Yeah. Whose, whose claim is also sort of nebulous. Uh, yeah. he's, he's got a better claim than either of those two people. So also uh, from the Holland Shed, Shakespeare inflates Lady Macbeth's role in the story. And he invents everything that happens to her after Act 3. <laughs> he also fabricates uh, Banquo's ghost haunting Macbeth. And he fabricates Macbeth's second audience with the witches. So in the Holland Shed, the first one is there, but not the second one. He also pulls from other parts of the Chronicles, like the account of the 10th century king of Scotland, Duff, who was murdered by Johnwald, whose wife urged him to do it. So Duff's wife was like, hey, Duff, why don't you go murder Donwald? I'm sorry, it's hard to take Sounds... anybody named Duff seriously. I know. It reminds me of Duff Beer from The Simpsons. Sure. <laughs> so the Donwalds get their king's attendants drunk, and then Donwald kills the attendants um, in a fabricated fit of rage at discovering the body of the king. So it's basically Macbeth. Um, and so he pulled this this historical account of this other set of events and other set of kings and put it into his Macbeth story. Also, so weird, but uh, Shakespeare was not the only playwright in the early modern period. I know this is lies. Scurrilous. Yeah, I know. Lies. I know. Egregious. Shakespeare didn't write in a vacuum. I know. I know all about it. <laughs> um, but we can see that Holland Shed had an influence on other playwrights as well of the time. Uh, there's notably Christopher Marlowe who used the Chronicles as his source for Edward II. So Marlowe, like Shakespeare, cherry-picks the portions of the account that he wants to use, and he supplements them with his own inventions, and ignores the boring parts of the Chronicles that focus on, like, 
foreign policy and war with the surrounding countries. He's like, that's boring. I want to write some gay shit. I mean, yeah. But once place- given the option, <laughs> right? like, I would. <laughs> so much rather. Yeah. <laughs> One place, though, that he follows the Hollandshed text really closely is in his depiction of Edward II's murder, uh, which notes that his killers held him down, quote, with heavy feather beds or a table and, quote, put into his fundament an horn and through the same they thrust up into his body a hot spit. So just fundament means butthole. So they, they put... They put a horn, like a funnel, basically into his ass and then shoved a, a hot poker. Um, and that is how that he into... died, y'all. That, yeah, yeah. Like, I was not being shitty. facetious last week when I said that Gaveston was a little fucker for leaving Edward to that fate. Like, that was a real mm-hmm. thing that happened to him. That was yeah. shitty. If you are interested in learning more about the Holland Shed... Um, we are going to throw up a link on our website to the landing page for the British Library, which gives a thorough overview of the Chronicles and includes pictures. Woohoo! And that is what I have to say about Holland Shed's Chronicles. Yay! Oh, it's my cue. Yeah. Right. That's your cue. You gotta... Glock. That was your Burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Fuck is Henry right, well, VI? We can, oh, we there can pick he is. up the family okay. tree found, where it left it. off. You know, um, I don't know where it left off. So, well, probably with Henry yeah, V. We did. We talked about Henry V. How he's a Plantagenet. Well, they're all Plantagenets until now. Yeah, that all of that Plantagenet shit and like the split between the Yorks and the Lancasters happens in this play. Basically, keep in mind that at the top of this play everyone's one big family they're not happy but they're one big plantagenet family and then in this play is when the rift happens and it's a big fucking deal so henry six is the son of henry five weird how that works out i know and historically he was born in 1421 and he reigned from 1422 to 1461 Mm -hmm. so he he became king when he was Uh, a baby. baby uh he married margaret of anjou in 1482 nope no he was dead by then she died in 1482 i don't know when they got married but they got married and she died in 1482 uh henry VI died in 1471 so he lived 10 years uh after he was deposed locked up for most of that time right Yeah, yeah 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 uh so they Henry Henry and Margaret had one child together, Edward, Prince of Wales, who was born in 1453 and died in 1471, same year as Henry VI. Right. So to put that in context with the rest of the plays in this tetralogy, um, mm-hmm. Edward, Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou's son, was the person that Lady Anne was engaged to. Uh, or, well, in, in Richard III, they have her as already having married him. So like... Lady Anne, yes. right? So Anne moving, moving forward in time, Anne Neville, the one that Richard woos over the corpse of the adult and dead Henry the Sixth, right? So uh-huh. connecting, just connecting those things. These are the same people. We're talking about the same people. Yes, yeah. So historically, Anne Neville was married to Edward Prince of Wales, and then Edward Prince of Wales died, and then she married Richard the Third. Okay, I thought they were just engaged. They, they, I whatever. The, I, well, I mean, the family tree that I'm looking at in the sure. front cover of the Norton sure. indicates that they were okay. married with a little M. Okay. So 
Unless that means men gauged and not married. <laughs> so that seems like the relevant family yeah. tree stuff. Um, the rest of this gets into right. Oh, and we're gonna do a dramatis personae, and we'll flesh out yeah, some of the important which, players which and how they're serves. related. So, yeah. But yeah. just think about that in terms of family tree. This is the son of Henry V, like the guy mm-hmm. Henry V. We few, we mm-hmm. happy few. This is the play mm-hmm. and the set of plays about his progeny. So, before we do our summaries and our dramatis personae, we always begin with a five-word unhelpful title. This week, mine is Joan of Arc's A Witch. Except she's not really a witch. But this play paints her out to be a witch. My five-word unhelpful title is Shakespeare's Action Blockbuster plus Fiends. Sexy. Also unhelpful. (laughs) A little bit. All right. Let's uh, let's do this DP. Yeah, Yeah, baby. All right. So, uh... The key players that you're going to need to know while we go through our summary of this play begins with the one, the only, I guess he's the sixth, Henry <laughs> the sixth. Uh, he's a baby king. Uh, like Jess just said, he was crowned king because his dad died within, in the first year of his life. So he was crowned king as an infant. Um, he relies <laughs> on his uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, not Richard Gloucester, not Richard the third. This is a different person with the same title. Um, So just keep that in mind. Duke of Gloucester um, for advice and the real work of managing the kingdom. And Shakespeare really conflates a lot of years here because by the time this first play is over, Henry is of marriageable age. Yeah. So it's it's unclear to me exactly how old Henry is supposed to be at the start of this play, but not a baby. Okay, but it also begins with them mourning Henry V. So like it feels recent, but yes, but it's not. So I don't know. Yeah. I may, I'm going to maybe walk back the thing that I just said. <laughs> so also we have Charles, who's the Dauphin of France. He's called Charles the Dolphin because the English hate the French and they hate French words. Mm-hmm. So they say dolphin. Uh, and he is Henry's rival for the throne of France. Next, we have Joan of Arc called Joan La Pucelle in this play. And she is fearless and brave. Um, but in Shakespeare's rendition, definitely not divinely inspired. More like diabolically inspired, uh, and also mm. maybe a whore. Also, fun fact: back when I was still a practicing Catholic, she was my patron saint when I got confirmed. So, huh. hashtag on brand for me. I think like I never got confirmed. So yeah, yeah I totes did. She was far. my she was my saint. That's my saint name is Joan. Nice. Yep. So next up we have Papa Talbot, Papa John Talbot. Um, I'm calling him Papa because he's got a baby who's not in this dp but it's kind of cool player, in the play. Yeah. anyway whatever Later in the play yeah i he's i think he's in like right. two sentences in the right. summary which is why he's not anyway papa talbot uh who later becomes the earl of shrewsbury uh and he is the greatest of the english generals in france uh he's a pretty great fighter and he's fucking some shit yeah. up he was at the battle of agincourt so you're gonna hear if you're at all familiar with henry v you're gonna hear a lot of some of these names like talbot mentioned again because these are some of the ogs that were with henry v who are now in henry the sixth court and sort of jockeying for control over the during this regency period while henry the sixth is still coming of age so if the name talbot sounds familiar that is why okay so just trying to connect some of those dots um next we have richard plantagenet heir to the dukedom of york his father was a traitor to henry v so he's been waiting for Henry VI to come into power to restore his lands and titles. 
Also, he thinks he has a better claim to the throne than Henry does. So that's a problem. Um, and he's the leader of the White Rose Party. And so Richard Plantagenet, this is Richard III's papa. This is his dad. Yep. This is Richard of York, yep. Richard III's dad. Then we also have Henry Buford, who is the Bishop of Winchester. And by the end of the play, he's the Cardinal of Winchester. And he is corrupt af. That's all you got to know about him. Uh, next, we have the Duke of Gloucester, Lord Protector of the Realm. Uh, he hates the Bishop of Winchester, so those dudes are arch enemies. He does not care how much damage he does to the kingdom as long as he can keep sticking it to the bishop. We've got the Duke of Suffolk, William de la Brrr, who is a sex pot. Yes. Uh, at the end of the play, he captures Margaret of Anjou and brokers her marriage to Henry. They also have like epic forbidden love, so it's awesome. Um, I'm sorry. I'm just a sucker for Suffolk. You're into the second play, I know. babe. No, no, he like sneaks a little kiss from her at the end of this play. Like it starts here. Sure, the seedling starts sure. here. Okay, okay, sure. okay. All right, carry sorry. on. Um, then we have the Duke of Somerset. He's the enemy of Richard Plantagenet, aka York. He's the leader of the Red Rose Party, the Lancaster Party. Uh, and then to round it out, we have an actual shit ton of lords and dukes and servants and soldiers and messengers and friends and French people. Um, also, Margaret, who is important, but she's barely in barely. this play. Uh, so we're not really going to talk about her yet. And I left her out of the DP on purpose. That's fine. That's yep. fine. So she's in one scene yeah. and she's got like 20 yeah, lines. She has one scene and it's the hot one with Suffolk. Just saying. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, Jess, why is this place so goddamn popular? It's not. But I like, I really like this play. Uh, of all of the Henry plays, this is the only one that I find tolerable, frankly. Of all of the seven plays named after Henry's, this is the only good one. Oh, ouch. That's way <laughs> harsh, Ty. <laughs> I stand by it. Um, and why this one is tolerable to me. Uh, and also exciting and also good is because once you get through the political setup of acts one and two, and frankly, mostly just act one, the play moves like fucking lightning. It's just a mile a minute and it's a scene and a battle and a scene and a battle and a scene and a battle. And it's really exciting. Uh, and we've also got Joan of Arc who is kind of a badass and she conjures demons. Spoiler demons so i don't know what else you want from a play other than battles and demons mm. but um if you want things that are more than that i'm gonna ask you to look at your life and look at your choices and understand that this play has everything that you need well i think shakespeare's own patrons agreed because the henry the sixth this is all of the henry the sixths were very popular during his time they sure. were really sure. popular like they were some of his earliest plays and they put mm -hmm. him on the map. So I don't know what mm -hmm. happened between like 400 years ago and now for it to fall out of popularity. It's almost like people don't want to like sit and listen about like learn about history or something. Um, a little bit. But his own fans loved it. So yeah, we should... I'm going to talk about that in tips and Although it's kind of having a moment right now. Like I've noticed, you know, know, history plays in general, but also like the Henry VI cycle for whatever reason has been popping yep. up. At a lot of regional theaters lately so i don't know maybe it's it's getting a resurgence in popularity because it's fucking good it is good it's a good play all right you ready for the yes. summer 
That's our new summary sound. I'm going to do it. Uh, all right. So we will now summarize the first part of Henry VI for you in a segment that this week we're calling Shakespeare's Action Blockbuster. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you'll only need the edge. <laughs> Um, it was so bad. It was good. All right. It was perfect, and you know it. Yeah, kind of. It was great. Your delivery you really sold it for me. Okay. Well, I mean, you're a star. What you think? I'm gonna half-ass the delivery? I mean, Come you on. might. I'm a half-ass everything else. But your whole joke is about half-assing a seat. So, bump, bump. Because because you'll be on the edge of your seat. I know. Because it's a I blockbuster. It. Because of all of the I fights and the deans. The deans. The, the, the deeds. Deans. The deeds. <laughs> Just right. get to the summary. I'm, I'm, I've got my timer. You I'm ready? You ready to so rock and ready. roll? Okay, here we yep. go. So Henry V is soup's dead, uh, and everybody's real sad about it. So then we find out that there have been a series of losses in France, and Charles the Dolphin has crowned himself king, and our super brave General Talbot has been taken prisoner. So the nobles prepare for war, and the Bishop of Winchester plots to gain control of baby Henry VI. In France, the French are unexpectedly driven back by the English. Joan arrives and she tells Charles about her vision that she would be the savior of the country. And Charles is like, mm, I'm going to make you fight with me to see if you can actually fight like you say you can fight. Uh, and she easily overcomes him. And then sh he immediately falls in love with her. And she promises to raise the siege. Elsewhere, Winchester and Gloucester fight over control of the king. Then back in France, Joan faces the recently freed Talbot in battle and beats him. But she doesn't kill him. And he thinks she's a witch. And then Charles from the battle from the walls of the captured Orléans declares that he will give Joan half the kingdom and predicts that she will be France's patron saint. Uh, all right. In Act Two, the English nobles scale the walls of Orléans in the dead of night and take it back and catch the French by surprise, like literally with their pants down, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Charles yep. blames Joan for the upset, so he turned on her pretty easily. Talbot responds to an invitation from the Countess of Auvergne, who is plotting to capture him, and she thinks her plan is perfect, and she's like, nya, nya, nya. but Talbot is a step ahead, and even though she's locked him in her castle, his men have the place surrounded, and it's really she who is captured, and she's impressed AF and apologizes. They might do it after that? I don't know. It's anybody's guess. It's a choice. To the start of the War of the Roses, Richard Plantagenet, a.k.a. York, a.k.a. Richard III's daddy, and the Duke of Somerset argue in a garden and choose different colored roses for themselves and their supporters. Richard has more supporters than Somerset, so more white roses get picked and Somerset lashes out like losers do. Richard's supporters pledge to keep wearing their roses until his father's treason is wiped out and he's restored as the Duke of York. To wrap up Act 2, there's a short scene where Richard Plantagenet goes to visit his dying uncle Mortimer. Remember, this is the same Mortimer who went to Wales in 1 Henry IV. It's the same Mortimer who like married a Welsh girl and there was like that weird scene in Wales with Glendower. Okay, same Mortimer, uh, who was Richard II's heir, but lost his right to the throne when the Lancastrian Henrys usurped the throne. And this highlights Richard's claim to the throne, which is definitely better than Henry VI's claim. And as Mortimer's dying, he, Richard vows to be restored to his lands and titles. 
All right, in Act 3, Parliament. Uh, we're in Parliament. Gloucester and the Bishop are fighting, and then the Mayor of London enters asking for help to keep Gloucester's men and the Bishop's men from fighting each other with sticks and stones in the streets. Warwick brokers an uneasy peace between them for the moment, and Henry VI on stage for the first damn time in this play in Act 3, Scene 1, restores Richard Plantagenet as Duke of York. Some people are happy, some people aren't. To bolster public opinion, uh, Gloucester suggests that they crown Henry a second time, this time as King of France. Exeter wordly recalls a prophecy that definitely won't shape the rest of this play and also the next two about how Henry V would win everything, but Henry VI would lose everything. Dun, dun, dun. In France, Joan and Charles take Rouen. Uh, Talbot tries to convince the French to fight for it in an open field, but they decline since they are already in possession of the city. Talbot lays siege and he takes it back from the French. Joan convinces the English Duke of Burgundy to defect to the French since he's French by birth. And in the English court in Paris, Henry rewards Talbot for his military prowess and makes him the Earl of Shrewsbury. In Act 4, Henry is crowned King of France in Paris. And then he gets word of Burgundy's defection and sends Talbot to deal with the shit. The red and white rose parties argue and argue and argue until finally Henry settles the matter by telling them it's stupid and to fight over flowers and that anyone isn't better than anybody else and it all means nothing. And he puts on a red rose to prove his point, which is definitely a very good idea that will have no ramifications at all, ever. Uh, and then everybody prepares for war at Bordeaux and all the red rose, white rose nonsense is spilling over into people and they're not sending their troops where they're needed. Definitely not. This is fine. York and Somerset, sorry, York and Somerset are too busy trying to stick it to each other to send reinforcements to Talbot at Bordeaux. So Talbot and his son both die in battle. Back in London, Henry and Gloucester are making arrangements for a peace treaty with France that hinges on Henry marrying the daughter of the Earl of Armagnac. Henry, however, thinks he is too young to get married and prefers to spend his time with books rather than mm. women, because he's a nerd. In France, the two English armies have combined, and the French are outnumbered, but they get ready to fight anyway. When they start losing, Joan summons some demons, but they refuse to help her, and she is captured mm. by York. Elsewhere, Suffolk has captured Margaret, and he immediately falls in love with her. He's already married, though, so he brokers her marriage to Henry instead, so he can take her home with him and make her his mistress. Joan is executed at the stake after claiming execution exemption on the grounds that she's a virgin, and when that doesn't work, on the grounds that she's pregnant with the dolphin's baby. Uh, that doesn't work, and she's executed. The Bishop of Winchester enters to broker peace with Charles, who agrees to reign as viceroy under Henry as King of France. Back in England, Suffolk convinces Henry to marry Margaret. Suffolk is super excited that Margaret is going to rule Henry, and he's going to rule Margaret, so he's about to become the most powerful man in England, and that is the end of the play at six minutes and one second. For a history play, that's pretty good. That's the play! Hooray! That's it's the play. Fantastic. Such a cliffhanger with Suffolk, like, thinking he's going to rule Margaret, who's, like, the scariest woman of all time. What a dummy. Lucky he's cute. She's not scary in part one, Well, though. no, because, like you said, she barely talks. But, like, she turns yeah. into this, like, beast of a warrior woman. Sure. It's just funny that at this point in the trilogy, like, that's where Suffolk thinks this is going, and it's not. The, yeah, that's <laughs> It makes me happy. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, Tips and tidbits time. Cool stuff oh. about the text as I drop my glockenspiel <laughs> thingy. Get it together, Whitlock. Um, Alright, so here, like our Comedy of Errors week is another week that I'm just gonna <coughs> throw some stuff real fast. 
Um, cool. Don't have anything I want to go deep on, so mm-hmm. I'm I'm going wide. Yeah. Uh, so number one, The Lord Strange's Men premiered the play in 1592, and it was a smash. But it fell out of favor around the time of the printing of the first folio, and it didn't see many performances until the mid 20th century. And like Aubrey said earlier, it's having a moment right now. Uh, it's been having a moment since. Oh, the 50s, but really maybe the 90s. It's it's getting there. It's still, it might be the least popular of all of Shakespeare's plays, although that could also be argued for like maybe six others. Maybe. maybe. King John. Yeah. Two Noble Kinsmen. Oh Tymon. <laughs> the other Henry VI plays. <laughs> It's down there. It's it is it is not often performed, Um, but it should be because it's great because Joan and demons and battles. Um, So it is also almost definitely written after the other two plays in this trilogy, probably as a bid to capitalize on the success of those other plays in like a prequel situation. Boy, we've never heard of anyone doing that before being like, hey, you know, it was great. Now let's ruin it by adding Jar Jar Binks. Who's the Jar Jar in this analogy? I'm just curious. Well, no one, because this is good. And the Star Wars prequels were bad. I mean, yeah, they were terrible. Bite me on it, people. I I I won't, because that's, it's, it's, they're bad. (laughs) This is like, this is like a, like an Indiana and the Crystal Kingdom, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom, the Crystal Skull. (laughs) It's like that situation. <laughs> it sounded for a minute like you were conflating Indiana Jones and the Dark Crystal, which would have been a hell of a movie, <laughs> by the way. 1010 would Oh my see. God. Uh, anyway, it's a prequel. So early records of the play just call it Harry the Sixth. That was the play's title. Uh, and it didn't get its standard one Henry VI title until the folio was printed in 1623. That is what we have to thank for standardizing the titles of all the history plays, frankly, um, because the original title of you know Henry VI Part Two was uh, the first part of the contention between the two noble houses of York and Lancaster, or some shit. Henry V is the life and death of King Henry V, so on and so forth. But in the folio table of contents, they all got standardized. So thanks, Hemings and Condell. Also, the only authoritative text that we have of this play comes from the folio. It was never printed in quarto. Um, I'm going to finish out with some authorship stuff. So, yeah. Uh, A couple of years ago at this point, it still feels very, very fresh, but it was legit like 2015. Gary Taylor, good old pal Gary Taylor, who's at the universe. No, he's at Florida State. That sounds right. Whatever's in Tallahassee, that's where he is. Gary Taylor made waves when he claimed that Christopher Marlowe was absolutely 100% without a shadow of the doubt co-author of this play and all of the other uh, Henry VI plays as well. Um, And in fact, here is how it is listed in the New Oxford. To quote, the first part of King Henry VI or Harry VI by Christopher Marlowe Thomas Nash and Anonymous, adapted by William Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Yeah, so Gary Taylor is frankly 
claiming only the very most tenuous of Shakespearean authorship for this play. Mm. Gary Taylor and his co-editors for the, the New Oxford, which there's like 23 of them, they claim sole Shakespearean authorship for 2-4, which is the rose plucking scene, and 4-2, which is where Talbot prepares to lay siege to Bordeaux, plus parts of 4-3, 4-4, and 4-5, which are the siege of Bordeaux. Um, and note that those scenes are almost definitely post-premiere performance editions, which were probably added in 1594 or 1595. So a whole two and or three years after this play was performed for the first time is when we get the Shakespearean editions, they say. They also claim that Nash, quote, almost certainly wrote all of Act One, and, quote, Marlowe is clearly the author of 5-4 and 5-5, and probably other scenes featuring Joan. So 5-4 is when Joan conjures her fiends, mm. and 5-5 is when Joan is captured. And so Gary Taylor thinks... This play is mostly the work of Marlowe and Nash, um, and then a little bit Shakespeare after the fact. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, caused a stir. You don't say. To, to say the least, when, when he put this out. Authorship studies are so complicated and involve a lot of math and science and like computer programming, and I don't really understand a whole lot about how it works. So I'm not willing to disagree with Gary Taylor on this. I also frankly don't care. Authorship doesn't change what this play is, you know? True. I could, I could get a time machine and go back in time and find out that Ben Johnson wrote the entirety of this play all by himself. And it would not change what this play is, frankly. Might make me think a little bit better of Ben Johnson. But, <laughs> yes. <you know. laughs> I'd be like, Ben, you actually wrote something good. Congratulations, man. So uh, that's that's what I got for that. So take it away, Aubrey, with your yeah. production shit. You know what? It actually kind of tracks for me now that we're talking about authorship. And like you said, Marlowe is the author of all the scenes with Joan. Like Marlowe yeah. being an atheist and like being so yep. cynical as he was about the church. Like, yep. of course, of course that and demons, yeah. demons, Faustus. Yeah. Demons. Yeah. This, that makes total sense. Yeah. To I'm me. not about to argue with it. I, yeah. I think, it I mean, that tracks when you started saying it, I was like, yeah, yeah. Figures fucking figures. Yeah. Marlowe. Okay. Yeah. So for a little bit of pragmatic production perspective, this is a history play. Don't know if you've noticed that by all the times we've said history play, but it's one of those histories that jumps back and forth between England and France a fuck ton. So finding a way in your production to differentiate between France and England visually might be helpful. Or, you know, if you're brave and if you have a great dialect coach, perhaps dialectically for certain characters maybe not everybody because that would be obnoxious but you know is a choice whatever you do but finding a way to differentiate and making that clear for your viewers for your audience um is gonna really go a long way if you are into the stage fights and the choreographing of battles there are so many and just like little moments within the battles there i mean when Talbot dies and his son dies in his arms and then he dies, it's so sad. And it's like, they're fighting together. It's one of those classic, you know, let's go to war together, dad. Okay, son. And then they, you know, they fight and they die. It's kind of epic. And so there are just, there, there are moments within those fights that are really cool. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the fights themselves, especially like Joan getting her power from wherever she gets it 
right? Um, she was like historic Joan of Arc was recorded to have committed many feats in battle. Like she being like 14 or however old she was, you know, led the French to victory many times during this period, which is why the English hated her so fucking much. Um, which is why, you know, she was vilified amongst the English anyway. I mean, despite Shakespeare and her and like maligning her and conjuring fiends and shit. Side note, super shitty how the French just handed her over to the English, by the way. Like they did her dirty and I think they know it. Thanks for nothing, France. So you have fights. You have someone in the play who may or may not be divinely empowered, divinely inspired. Um, so how you choose to show those things on stage, uh, could be cool. And then of course, you know, as with any early modern text, um, but particularly where there's one little girl against a bunch of big boys, uh, you have all of the sexism to contend with. So how you deal with that in production, or if you're, if you're teaching this play, you know, how you, how you approach that when you're reading it, when you're encountering it, um, do you stop and talk about it? There's always the question of like, do you sort of go against it in your production and like show how, how look at how dated this is and comment on it while it's happening? Or do you just let it happen and let people draw their own conclusions? I'm not going to weigh in either way on that because frankly, it depends on, depends on how feisty I'm feeling that day, whether I want to do that. <laughs> you know, that, and that struggle is very real. Welcome to life as a woman. And then, you know, finally, this play, like Jess said, it's a blockbuster, but it also has... It's got all of the important stuff that kicks everything off. So bottom line, uh, anything that you do has to be clear. Um, you've got to find a way to make it clear. Um, maybe, maybe, you know, dramaturgically somehow um, get yourself a good dramaturg, somebody who can lead some talkbacks or who can make a pretty good family tree for you to put in your program or, you know, you can do that for yourself in the classroom, but like make it clear how all of these people are connected to the plays that came before because um, that helps, you know, context and making connections. Uh, it helps in comprehension. It also helps with investment. You know, like if, if I'm in the audience and I'm like, wait, 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 that guy in the prison that Richard Plantagenet is talking to is Mortimer, that dude who had the Welsh wife singing at him, like in Henry IV. That's the guy who's locked in prison now and has been presumably since since henry the fourth aka and hal's dad took power like you know so investing in those people because you know their history now too helps with comprehension uh and investment in the play as a as a whole yeah i don't know i mean it's not required that you do a family tree and i think when it's done wrong it gets cumbersome but like i personally like to know if there are recurring characters like i like to be reminded of who they are and how they fit in the whole story, like in the overall thing. And I just, I, it's good for your brain to make connections like that too. Like finding cognates and stuff. Just, that's the thing that I like. That is a little bugaboo of mine about history plays that I need to know the players and I need to know the recurring players. Sure. I mean, history plays are big. Yeah. yeah they're sweeping and, and, full and of tracking, yeah. tracking who everyone is is hard. Yeah. So it's rough. Uh, I feel you. Yeah. All right. Uh, you want to play a game? Yeah. It's game time. We're going to play line roulette. And that's our first time we're doing it this season. So let me refresh your memory on yeah. what it is. Uh, basically, you can hear the dice clanking right now. Jess is going to roll the dice. She's going to turn to an act 
and a scene and a line number within Henry VI Part One, and whatever that line is, she's gonna have to make. She's got 60 seconds to make an argument for why that line encapsulates the meaning of the whole play. It's always it's always fun. So whenever you're ready, just drop them dice. All right. Whoa. Okay. Here we go. This is gonna be Act Five. Act Five. Ooh. Scene. Two. Act five, scene two. Which text are we using today for your for your line roulette? Today I am using the new Oxford oh, uh, because the Arden. <gasps> Look at those is pretty tabs trash. you put in it. Oh yeah, yeah. I tab all my complete works. Is well, not all of them, but the Norton and this one, but not the Norton three because it's trash. Uh, okay, what did I say? Five. Yep. Two? Five two. Five two. Line forty two. I have two. Line 42. Oh, I'm dying. Okay. Let's hear it. Line 42 is one line of a four-line sentence. So I'm just going to read the, the sentence. And okay. We'll, we'll say that's my okay. line. So that seems sure. fair. It is Gloucester talking to some ambassadors. Mm. And he says, And for the proffer of my lord your master, I have informed his highness so at large as liking of the lady's virtuous gifts, her beauty, and the value of her dower. Oh, he's talking about Margaret. Or no, that not doesn't Margaret. Feel he's like... talking about some No, the other he's girl. talking about the Earl of Armandiac's daughter. Um, it also doesn't seem like a complete sentence. Might be easier just to go with the short chunk. You know what? You might be right. You might be right. I have informed his highness so at large. Okay. All right. I think I can do this. Yeah. You got a timer or some shit or you want me Hold to time it? it? I got this. The line is, I have informed his highness so at large. Go. Okay, so uh, this, the single line, these 10 syllables encapsulate what this play, not just this play, but the whole tetralogy is about, um, is about information and who has it and who gets to give it and who's in charge of it and who controls it um, and also access to the king. So, right, so this is Gloucester speaking and access to the king is super important. And he has it, which means the Bishop of Winchester doesn't, but the Bishop of Winchester does. Um, but it's, it's all, it's just a power struggle. It's all a power struggle. It's all information. It's all knowledge. It's all access to the king. Uh, that's, that's what I got. Oh, I'm done. With like a whopping 20 seconds to spare. Good for you. There's always kings being informed of something in one of these plays. Yep. Yes. Okay. Oh, all right. Well, let's gossip and then yeah. do the thing. All right. So happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. Today, August 22nd, is the anniversary of the Battle of Bosworth Field. You remember that battle. That's the one that uh, in which Richard III was brutally mutilated and killed in battle by Henry Tudor and probably a lot of other guys. And then yep. centuries later... It was paved over his body and it was made into a car park. And then a few decades after that, they dug him up and they found him. So today is the anniversary of uh, the Bosworth, the Battle of Bosworth, which is what put Henry Tudor on the throne and started the Tudor reign and the English monarchy as we know it. So there That's you go. That's it. That's what it was. That's what happened. Yep. Um, also, just a few, if you're in the San Diego area, um, our good friend, Renee Thornton Jr., is killing it out there. He was in a production of The Tempest at the Old Globe. Um, they just opened Much Ado at the Old Globe, which I think will run through the end of the summer at the very least. So good on you, Renee. We miss you and wish you the mm, best. True. Um, but we know you're doing wonderful things out there in Southern California. 
Um, and nobody can blame you, really, because the weather is way better down there than it is here. <laughs> it's a rainy swamp here. So you left right when you should have. <laughs> you escaped. Um, so good for you. Also, in our Shakes Bubble gossip this week, my search for the white whale continues. <sighs> I thought I had an in to see King John again because my friend Marshall B. Garrett and his wife Tess Garrett are theater makers in the Baltimore area and Tess was in a production of King John and Marshall was like hey come and see Tess and King John it'll be great and I was like yeah awesome when does it play end of August that's cool that's never coming so I can not think about it for a while um, <laughs> send me the dates later bro turns out they closed last weekend and the, uh, well, the they have like a few more encore nights in a vineyard which apparently is pretty cool but it's only on friday nights and i'm in rehearsal mm. for a play of my own right now on friday nights mm. so if it had been on the weekend i might be sitting here saying i completed my canon but instead because i'm a dummy and i forgot how time works uh, <laughs> i i yet again missed a chance to see king john it's my fault <laughs> the saga continues Someday I'll complete my canon, man. Someday. I mean, it's playing at the Folger. Yes. Like in the spring, right? Soon-ish. Right? Mm, I mean, you should look because I, I thought it was in the fall. Oh, well, if so, then yeah, it's uh, coming. I mean, either soon. way, it's that's a day trip. Yes. Just go up to the fold. Yes. And see it. This time I won't forget how time works and I'll make time to go see it. So tell us about your saga. So <laughs> I am approaching... The, the part of my life that is going to be devoted to writing my dissertation. Mm -hmm. um, this is my last semester of coursework, which means the dissertation is less than a year away mm -hmm. for me. Frankly, it is, it is getting real close. And I, as such, have been thinking about it more and more and more. And I came in with a pretty fully formed project. And in the last little bit, it has metamorphosed. And it's, it's going in directions that I didn't fully anticipate and are not fully formed. But so briefly, um, I came in with the idea that I was going to work on Shakespeare in wartime in early American cultural centers. Mm -hmm. And that has not, well, it, it might be going away now, uh, but it, it, that has made, been pretty constant for the last couple of years with a shift in thinking to I want to focus on identity and how how Shakespeare contributes to identity both on the national and the individual level. And then in the last couple of weeks, well, not in, maybe in the last six months, I've started to think a little bit more about race and Shakespeare and identity. Um, and then in the last week, it it took a it took a turn. Ooh. Not one that I can fully articulate at this moment. Not one that I can even sort of semi-articulate at this moment. It's gone off the deep end. Um, and I have an appointment on Friday to talk with one of my faculty who is a Victorianist and particularly an expert on British India. So, and, and what is British India not? Well, it's not America during early wartime. So... Um, the dis is going places, and uh, as it develops, I look forward to sharing bits and pieces of that with you, but I don't have anything more exciting to say about it right now. Yeah, those are quite some somersaults. I understand why you're tired. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm wrecked. Um, all right, well, let's, let's argue about some dicks and get the fuck out of here. Ooh. 
It's dick bracket time. We're going to talk about a couple of pairs on our brackets. Uh, So tonight's mashups, tonight's matches are uh, Tamburlaine versus Iago Mm. and Angelo versus Volpone. And how this is going to work, I suppose, is we're each going to make our case and we might argue a little bit and we're going to try to come to a consensus and then we're going to throw it out on Twitter for you guys to vote. And uh, next week we will announce who actually won these matches. Cool. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Take it away. Tamburlaine versus Iago. Jess is going to argue for Tamburlaine. So I just, I want to just point out a couple of things that Tamburlaine does in Tamburlaine part one. I don't have any notes for Tamburlaine part two because I am a fool. Um, (laughs) So this is, this is all just based on Tamburlaine part one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, Tamburlaine in act one of his play captures uh, Xenocrates I'm going to assume that's how we say her name. Um, And even though she is betrothed and is en route to her new home, he woos her in quotes. Probably he rapes her and he tells Xenocrates and all of the, the people that she's traveling with that unless they join him willingly, he's just going to enslave all of them, which is a dick move. He also kills a bunch of people in battle and like conquers a lot of territory and crowns himself emperor. And then Xenocrate is is sad and her her pal Agidas, Agidas, I don't know, is like, hey, boo, what's going on? Oh, are you sad because Tamburlaine totally raped you and kidnapped you and forced you to just like be here in his court? Um, and Tamburlaine overhears this and then he takes Sinocrity away and is like, hey girl, it's all going to be okay. But then what he does is he sends Agidas a dagger and is like, kill yourself or I'm going to kill you. So Agidas kills himself. And then Tamburlaine finally... Uh, captures Bajazeth? Bajazeth? Oh, these names, man. I know. Thanks uh, for nothing, Marlo. Right. They're all historical names also. It's just, it's like real... Yeah. I don't know. Sure. Um, anyway, so Bajazeth. He captures Bajazeth, who is the king of somewhere. Persia, maybe. Bajazeth and his wife, Zabina. And he uses them uh, as his slaves. And uh, so he keeps Bajazeth in a cage and uses Bajazeth as furniture and decoration and also a slave. Um, And it's really, really icky and gross and I don't like it. And it's a dick fucking move. Uh, And to end this play, the governor of Damascus sends four virgins to Tamburlaine to plead for peace. And Tamburlaine has the virgins murdered. So that's what I have to say about Tamburlaine. Uh, Tamburlaine versus Iago. So I'm going to argue for Iago. Um, Well, we all know Iago, but let me lay out for you the way Jess did what Iago does that makes him a bigger dick than Tamburlaine. Okay. First of all, Iago snitches on Othello on Othello's wedding night by using this rich dummy, Rodrigo, to do his dirty work. Um, So he starts strife right away. He pulls us in and gets our hands dirty watching it because he says, look at all these things I'm going to do. I'm going to ruin this guy's life because I hate him. 
and I have no reason for hating him other than he passed me over for a job that I should have gotten. Also, he's black. I hate him. Um, so he's super racist. Uh, he's a super misogynist. He's not very nice to his own wife, Emilia, ever. And then he plays on Othello's biggest weakness about himself and lets it fester, lets him think that uh, and and moves moves the playing the pieces on the chessboard uh, per se around to get uh, to manipulate Othello into thinking that his wife is unfaithful. Um, Othello believes it, goes nuts, kills Desdemona. Then we have the collateral from that. Iago also manages to get uh, Cassio, the guy who got the job that he thought he deserved. Um, he gets Cassio drunk and uh, through Rodrigo and gets him fired and disgraced. He also gets Rodrigo killed <laughs> when he is not useful anymore. Um, he kills his own wife because she cried out against him after Desdemona was murdered. She cried out against Othello and against Iago. So he murdered her to silence her. Um, he, once Othello has done the deed, ad kind of admits what he does, what he has done to Othello. And he's like, yeah, bro, I've hated you the whole fucking time. And now look what you did. <laughs> um, so Othello kills himself. Then he tightens up like a drum and won't say a word after that so he's caused all of this trouble and yet he and he still doesn't get doesn't seem to feel any remorse at all for killing all these people and causing all this trouble so there you go no justice yeah this is a hard matchup on one hand it seems like tamburlaine is like sort of needlessly cruel to everyone mm -hmm. and just vindictive but then again iago is kind of he is that too Right. Just yeah, he does different things, I, but it's it's needless cruelty. It's, it's a question of scale, maybe. I think Tamburlaine is a dick on a much larger scale. But that I think is only because Tamburlaine has the means to be digger to be a bigger dick on a sure. on a much larger scale. You know, he's got more power than Iago does. Right. Right. So Iago is trying to take some power back for himself. Right. And, Thus, but you're right it is, is on, it's on a very small it's on a domestic scale not on yeah, a national yeah. one right but does that make it more or less i don't think it does they're i think they're really evenly matched this is really hard i don't know where to go on this well maybe we leave it to the polls completely like we've laid the case for both sure sure we yeah take, maybe we maybe take our it. hands off yeah this i just i'm gonna say one more thing the thing that just really sticks in my craw which is what prompted the tweet in the first place started this whole shebang yeah. tamberlane uses another human as a footstool it's gross um all right so let's talk about angelo and volpone mm. so angelo of course is our our homeboy not my homeboy ain't my homeboy he's, he's a dude uh <laughs> he's the antagonist protagonist he's he's a tagonist he, i call tagonist. him an antagonist yeah 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 uh in um measure for measure which is by William Henry Shakespeare. And his whole thing uh, is is more or less in, in a nutshell, in a, you know, a reductive nutshell, um, is he tries to force himself on the nun Isabella. And when that doesn't go his way, he sets out to discredit her and ruin her. And, you know, it's it's a cautionary tale of what happens to women when they say no to men. Yeah. Word. and it's icky yeah and it's super fucking relevant and i'm gonna teach it to my students in october 
That's exciting. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see how it goes. Yeah, yeah he does that. Um, yeah. Volpone, on the other hand, basically lies to everyone he knows. Uh, and the only people he seems to know are a bunch of sycophants who are idiots. Because to refresh your memory, Volpone is very wealthy. He's the richest guy in town. Uh, he has snookered a bunch of people into believing that they are his heir when he dies. And he has also convinced everyone that he is dying and he's been dying for quite a while. So every time his health worsens, these people who think they're his heir, um, you know, give him the gifts and whatever. So he's been amassing more wealth from these people because they all basically think they're going to get it back when he dies. Um, but he's been doing that to a bunch of people. And then, you know, he really goes too far when he asks for a an interlude with one guy's wife who's celia celia yeah the other celia yeah he wants an interlude with her and she's known to be you know a chaste and virtuous wife her husband's a dick but that's a story for another time <laughs> maybe we should have had him on the bracket too if only i'd known um that's mm. voltore uh her husband voltore is a big old jerk and he keeps her sequestered you know so she's she's like forbidden fruit for Volpone and he's like oh she's so pretty and like if you really want to be my heir you'll let me sleep with your wife and Voltore being a another dick allows it you know they're interrupted he doesn't actually get to rape her but his intent definitely is to Volpone's intent is definitely to have her by force so you know he he goes from amassing wealth in objects to turning people into objects like a guy's wife um they just pass her around like she's a tradable item, which is gross. So these two, are, I think, are kind of evenly matched in that way, mm -hmm. uh, in the yeah. way they, they view women, for sure. I think Volpone is a pretty big dick compared to Angelo. They, again, I think they're pretty evenly matched in their in their dickishness. So we will, we've laid it out. That's what, that's what these guys have done. That's who they are. Yeah. We will throw it up on a Twitter poll. We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next week for Q1 Hamlet 101 with a very special guest. We're not so going to tell you who it is, but we're very excited. And yes, Q1 Hamlet, that is first quarter Hamlet, gets its own 101 episode because obviously it does. It's yep. such a good version of the play. It's not a bad quarter. I don't care what you say. Wamlet out. Wamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Wilt thou be daunted at a woman's sight? I, beauty's princely majesty as such, confounds the tongue and makes the senses rough. I put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes. Burning up my rubber going nine to five. I don't get to where I'm going. I think I might die. I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife. Early Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. 
To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey, if we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. Right by me, have a kid, have some family, gonna marry me the first woman I see. I'm so glad the live Glock is back. Oh, yeah. The canned Glock is fine, but the live Glock brings me such live joy. Glock is what it's all about. Mm. Yeah, I like a live Glock. <laughs> I just don't know any other instruments. I mean, I have a harmonica. I just can't make it make noise. I mean, I can, but it not not good noise. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry. When have we ever cared about good noise? <laughs>